Hi, this is CognitionX's podcast series where we look at the impact of AI and emerging technology on industry, government and society. I'm Charlie Muirhead. And I'm Tabitha Goldstorff. And this episode is a COGX Festival special. In June 2019, we were honoured to bring together 20,000 visitors who came to hear from over 600 speakers across 12 stages in the heart of King's Cross. Our mission is to bring clarity and help ensure responsible deployment and really move the conversation forward. We believe that AI has enormous opportunity for everybody, business, society, the planet. But only 12% of people think that technology has helped society. We won't reap the benefits of AI if we don't avoid the risks of AI. Organizations and individuals developing, deploying, or operating AI systems should be held accountable for their proper functioning. In this COGX special, we meet with Nigel Toon, the CEO and founder of GraphCore as he makes the argument that the only thing holding the AI world back from achieving greatness is the hardware available to them, and that we need to build new hardware to enhance AI for the future and beyond. Lucky that's what GraphCore does. Enjoy. Nigel Toon is the CEO of GraphCore, based in Bristol. Um, he's, uh, his company, lastly, was acquired by NVIDIA, and he's, uh, I think the, the architecture presented by GraphCore is one of the most compelling I've seen, and uh, one of the few people, I think, in the world who can give Jensen a run for his money. So please welcome Nigel. Thank you. Thank you for those kind words. So, no pressure, right? How many did you say there were? 63 companies in this space. Um, there were a similar number of Wi-Fi companies that uh, were funded as well. There was only one of the startups that managed to go public and remain independent. So, you know, let's not underestimate the challenge in front of, uh, of all these companies. So I'm going to save you from having any slides. Uh, maybe that's disappointing for some of you. Um, but I'm going to try and get you to do some of the work. So let me ask you a question. How do you think? I mean, think about you know, how you actually think. So imagine you're trying to recognize a cat. Can you describe what it is you're doing that would actually happen in your brain to cause you to recognize a cat? It's kind of not obvious, right? You know, we think we're very good at explaining and post-rationalizing how we describe and how we solve problems, etc. But but the reality is there's something very special going on here. So so take that other example. How do you make a decision. You probably all here made a decision recently. Maybe it was an important decision. Um, maybe you're changing jobs or moving house or something. Um, you know, and probably you look back on that and you think, well, I can post-rationalize how I made that decision. Um, you know, I went through these logical steps. But, but could you write a program that would allow you to make decisions um, successfully, even quite narrow sets of decisions. Could you actually write a program um, to do that? Or would it actually involve some level of intuition, some, some hidden magic somewhere that, that's causing you to make um, these decisions? I often find 
when I make difficult decisions, that there isn't enough data, there isn't enough information around to make the decision. And afterwards, you sort of post-rationalize why you make the decision and you sort of list out all the reasons why um, you actually did what you did. But actually, a lot of it was intuition, which kind of implies there's a black box somewhere in the middle of this that is how you're actually deciding, how you're actually thinking. There's lots of dots, and you're joining the dots together kind of magically inside this black box, inside this brain um, of yours. And, and so, you know, I think it's really important to realize that the way we think is not necessarily the way we write programs. Today, we write programs, and, and programs are becoming very, very complicated. And we do those in a sort of linear fashion. So this morning, I was a bit late getting here, um, running through the rain. I think we've all got wet. Um, I actually was over at Stratford, and I was invited to meet um, Theresa May. I think she's still our prime minister. Um, but it was kind of surreal to, to be involved meeting this person who's obviously in her last few weeks um, in office. Um, but when I say the words Theresa May, you know, I don't know how many of you here are from the UK. There's probably all kinds of triggers that go off in your brain. You know, you'll think of Brexit, compromise agreements. Um, you know, maybe Boris Johnson or leadership elections. You know, all these all these parallel triggers go off um, inside your brain. You know, that, and it's amazing how that happens. You know, you say a word and it triggers all these responses, especially something that's kind of quite well known or quite emotive in terms of the way you're actually thinking about things. So, so we're not thinking in, in straight lines. We're not thinking in sort of linear progressions. We're not thinking in terms of steps. Um, you know, lots of stuff is happening in parallel uh, inside our brains. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we should try and build computers using exactly the way our brain works. You know, we don't make aeroplanes that flap their wings. You know, we use different materials and we design things in different ways. You know, the best way to build computers today the reliable method, the method we know we can build in high volume, is silicon. So what we really need to think about is how do we change the way we build a silicon chip to be able to work more like our brain, to work in a way that is actually going to allow us to create these machine-intelligent systems. So 75 years ago, the very first electronic computer was built. It was built here in the UK. It was built at Bletchley Park. It was called Colossus. Um, nobody ever knew about it um, because it was kept secret. It was, it, was, it, was a, it was a wartime secret. It was used to crack the really difficult um, high command codes. The Enigma codes had already been cracked, and this was, a, this was a much more complex system that was designed to really crack the, the high command codes, and it came online just before D-Day, which we've just been celebrating um, 75 years ago, and it, it was able to actually crack all of the German high command codes, so the Allied forces knew exactly what the Nazis were thinking and what their plans uh, were. And it had a very simple software interface. It was actually plug boards that you actually programmed the system with. So it was actually programmable. You could change the program um, on the machine. 
And since that time, we've obviously built really, really complex software, what we think of as algorithms or describe as, as algorithms. The software has become incredibly complicated. It, it takes teams of people to write the code. Um, you know, one single person probably can't understand how the system is actually working. You need, you need really complicated verification teams to make sure the software is actually working. And even then, you seem to get bugs all the time in, in your software. So something really amazing happened just a few years ago, and um, James referred to it. AlexNet um, was the first time that a, a machine learning system was able to produce a result that was more accurate than an actual program. So for image recognition, um, AlexNet built a neural network model, a deep neural network model, that actually produced a result that was more accurate than any algorithm that had been created for doing image recognition. And it was a fundamental moment of a fundamental breakthrough in terms of machine learning having enough data having enough compute to be able to build a neural network model, a deep neural network model, that would actually be better than software. And that's the fundamental thing that's going on here in terms of machine learning in its broadest sense and, and what we think of as AI. It's not some special party trick where we're recognizing cats. This is really fundamental. We're moving from a world where we've told computers what to do step by step in a program to a world where they're going to learn from data. And the machines that we need to actually allow that to happen and to be efficient at doing that need to be different than the machines that we've built for the last 75 years that take a software program, process it, and, and give us an output. It's not just linear algebra. It's not just maths. That's a hugely important part of it. You know, convolutional neural networks, everybody's heard the term. What does it really mean? Well, when I went to university, it, convolutions basically is filtering, right? You know, you're taking some data, you're filtering something from the data to extract some information from it. And so it's layers of filters that are filtering out information from the data. We're building up a hierarchical understanding of the data, what we call dimensions of information about the data, to be able to understand from an image what actually is the object inside that image. So give me a million pictures of cats, I'll build a model that will be able to recognize cats. Hopefully it doesn't just recognize the cats that it's learned in the million images, it, hopefully it does something called generalization and actually generalizes and allows us to actually learn what cats generally look like. But it's still not quite the same as how we do it. It's kind of a bit like the frontal cortex of your brain, um, but it's not completely correct. Okay, we're recognizing the object, but are we then able to use that understanding to be able to recognize what a dog looks like or an animated picture um, of a cat? It's amazing. You know, you show a child, you show them a cat, they'll very quickly learn what a cat looks like, and then they'll see um, a cartoon on the television or on their iPad, and, and they'll be able to recognize an animated cat very, very quickly without ever being told that that was a cat. You know, so this ability to transfer learn, this ability to make these leaps is something that, that we can do. So we know the systems that we're building today, the machine learning systems that we're building today, are still very, very simple. They're not yet anywhere close to the kinds of 
real intelligence systems that we'll be able to build at some point in the future. And what's holding people back, and this is really what we learned when we started GraphCore, talking to all of these leading innovators in machine learning, is the key thing holding people back is hardware. The kind of machine learning that we have today is really enabled by the hardware that exists today. So GPUs and TPUs, for that matter, allow us to create the kinds of machine learning systems that we have and are being used today. But to be able to make the next breakthroughs, we need something more. We need something different. We need something which is much more powerful. And the key to understanding that is it goes beyond just the arithmetic. Yes, you need lots of arithmetic. But what we need to be able to do is to think more about the data than thinking about the arithmetic. The thing that you notice if you follow computer architectures is the architectures follow the data. Why is a GPU different from a CPU? Well, because the data is arranged in three-dimensional blocks, you know, X, Y pixels and a, and a Z dimension, which represents the color information inside your picture. And so GPUs are very good at taking large blocks of data, doing some very complex arithmetic on that, and, and creating some new results. So take this block, paint those pixels blue, and put them back um, in the screen. That is what GPUs were designed to do. So they have the arithmetic but they work on large blocks of data. And that's not how we actually need to deal with the data. The data we're trying to deal with is very, very different. The data structures that you're creating when you build a machine learning model are very high dimensional. And what that means is the data is connected to other sets of data, but it's not necessarily connected to all the other data. Think of a social media, um, uh, network. So you've got certain friends and they've got certain friends, but you don't know who all their friends are. So, you know, there's, there's lots and lots of different levels of connections um, inside that. And it's like the neurons and, and synapses in your brain. You know, you've, you've got different levels of connection and you're building up this very high dimensional picture of the underlying information that inside the data that you're learning from. And to be able to process on that data, what we actually need to be able to do is to access that data much more in parallel. So most CPUs today, GPUs today, they have a single big block of memory that sits next to the processor, and there's a high-speed connection to talk to that memory, and so there's big pieces of data being pulled into the processor. Um, that memory interface, that bandwidth on that memory interface has got wider, it's got faster. Um, the latest GPUs are using things called high bandwidth memory that deliver about 900 gigabytes per second of bandwidth to the memory, which is great. You know, incredible technology to be able to make that happen. But it isn't anywhere near enough. What we actually need are thousands of memories connected to the processors. We need to be able to improve that memory bandwidth by a factor of 100 at least. And so it's really the memory structure that becomes the critical piece inside the processor architecture. It's really the memory is the driving factor, has to drive the architecture. And, and some of the startup companies that were referred to earlier are thinking about this. I think GraphCore is one of the few that has really put this um, into action. 
if you can have thousands of processes connected to memory, the next problem you've got to worry about is how much of the energy are you spending on accessing that memory versus doing the compute. If you look at a CPU, the pipeline that is fetching the data from the memory, keeping the caches full, um, getting all the data lined up, making sure that it doesn't miss in the, in the cache pipeline, all of that is burning most of the energy inside a CPU. Very little of the energy is actually going to the arithmetic inside the CPU. So in a world where we are power density limited in silicon design today, what we need to do is to think much smarter about how we actually do that. We can't really have caches. We can't really have memory misses. We've got to have the data being local to the actual processors. And so we've got to order the data to be in the right places at the right time and get rid of all of that hierarchy and make it super simple so that all of the energy can go on actually doing the arithmetic rather than doing the data collection. And if you can do that, then you can roughly double the amount of work that you can do for a given piece of power consumption. That's what we've been able to do uh, inside GraphCore. And what we've also been able to do is to have thousands of processors connecting to thousands of memory, and which gives us 100 times um, the memory bandwidth compared to the conventional approaches. And what that means is that we have much, much more ability to do things in parallel, many more parallel tasks running inside the machine. But that alone is not enough. There was a really clever, very modest um, engineer who worked in IBM labs in the 1960s. His name was Edward Rent. Um, he looked at how logic and the inputs and outputs to that logic were actually related to each other. Um, and what he found was there was actually a rule, a law, which became called Rent's rule, uh, Rentian scaling, it's called, where the amount of interconnect is actually goes up on a power law compared to the number of logic cells that you have inside your chip, for example, or the logic that you have in a certain area in your chip. The interconnect to that area is a power law of the amount of logic you have inside that chip. So it's a fundamental part of uh, chip design. It's a fundamental part of FPGAs. Anybody here who's used an FPGA will know that you always run out of interconnect inside an FPGA. And it's basically because of this Rentian scaling problem. What's really interesting is that your brain has exactly the same scaling. If you look at neurons or collections of neurons and the, the synapses that connect to those, the connections to those neurons goes up on a power law, depending upon how many neurons you capture um, inside the group. So if you're going to put down lots of processors, the real issue you have to deal with is not just how do I get the data to be in the right place, but also how do I organize all of this communication that has to go on between the processors. I need to be able to account for the fact that as I have more and more processors, I need to have even more on a power law basis um, communication between those processes. And if you look at any parallel processor that's ever been built in the past, none of them have anywhere near enough interconnect. 
inside them between the processor cores. So again, that was something that we looked at very hard and we built into our uh, architecture. So, so what we built, um, I have one here in my pocket, not that you can see, I can show it to you afterwards. So here you have the world's most complex processor. This is 24 billion transistors. Um, it's built in 16 nanometer technology. We're working on a seven nanometer version, which will be even more complicated than this. It has 1,216 independent processor cores, each of which runs six program threads. So that's over 7,000 programs, independent programs that are running in parallel on that machine. Each of those processor cores has its own full speed memory. The processor cores run at 1.6 gigahertz each, and they produce 100 gigaflops, over 100 gigaflops of compute capability. So that gives us over 120 teraflops, actually 125 teraflops of performance, floating point arithmetic. Floating point is very, is very important. I won't go into the details of that here. There are some um, things on the web for our CTO that will go into the arithmetic issues. Um, but we've got huge amounts of computing power inside this device. But one chip on its own is not enough. So we've built interconnect into this chip that allows clusters of these processors to be connected together. And we've built an IPU gateway that allows us to build clusters of 4,000 IPUs. So that is, I wrote it down because I couldn't remember, 30 million parallel programs running on a cluster of 4,000 um, IPU processors, all working in parallel on a single problem. So, so that's what we're doing at GraphCorp. We've raised a ton of cash. Um, I think probably more than 10% of the money for Europe that uh, um, most of the money for Europe, I would say, that, that James has talked about. And, and we're really working and are trying to allow innovators to create the next breakthroughs in machine learning. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode compelling, there are three things we'd love you to do. One, subscribe to our podcast series so you don't miss another episode and please share it with your friends. Number two, if you want to experience COGX yourself, go to cogx.co and register so you hear about next year's event. And number three, if you have any other questions you'd like to ask anybody in the community, don't forget to register on cognitionx.com and ask a question on the Global Knowledge Network. Thanks for listening and let's keep moving the conversation forward together.